Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona, where we help build businesses and connect you with the right people. Today, we have the right person. <laughs> Please help me welcome President and CEO of the Arizona Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, Monica Villalobos. Thank you so much, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. A long-awaited conversation today, <laughs> right? Yes, I yes. Think, I think we you. figured out that we had Robin Reed and Daryl mm-hmm. Robinson uh, to thank for this opportunity. So yes. I'm thrilled that our, our schedules have finally created enough momentum that here we are to the talk The stars about. are aligned <laughs> That's today. right. And I'm glad we both stuck with it, too, yes. because it wasn't thank easy you. at times. <laughs> Monica, please. Please tell us about the chamber. And then, of course, we've got plenty of time in today's conversation. I want to hear the backstory, too, how you landed there. But who is the chamber and why is it important for us as business leaders to know who you all are and interact with you? Sure. Well, I'm very proud to serve as president CEO of your Arizona Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. This is a very special year for us. We're celebrating 75 years in Arizona, helping businesses grow and scale. And so we like to say we're a little bit different than what you might think a Chamber of Commerce is. Um, Sometimes I tease and say we're not your grandfather's Chamber of Commerce. Um, But that's really because most uh, Chambers of Commerce do the important work of public policy policy and advocacy. For us, that's absolutely important, but we really focus on economic development and market intelligence. And so over the last 75 years, um, we've really considered ourselves an extension of our members' businesses sales team, if you will. And one of the ways that we pay off on that is we operate the Minority Business Development Agency Center. Um, That is a $2 million grant over five years funded by the U.S. Department of Commerce. And we are measured quarterly on access to contracts, access to financing, and job creation. And so um, it's a very, we've got very, very strict metrics on that, um, which means that we're constantly working with our members to be able to get them all of the resources they need to grow and scale. Right now, we are at about 1,200 general members. And of the estimated 90 Fortune 2000 companies in the state of Arizona, we have an investment relationship with about 80 of them. So we've really grown over the last few years. I started with the chamber in 2012, first as a contractor, and then just fell in love with the mission and, and the work that we were doing. And in 2019, I had the opportunity to take on this role. And it was right before the pandemic. So... I keep saying I should have asked for hazard pay or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we survived it and we came out of it stronger than ever. And so as a contractor, what was your role in the early days? So my background, I'm a trained researcher. I'm really a numbers geek at heart. In front of an Excel spreadsheet is probably my favorite place in the world. It's my happy place. And so we do a lot of market intelligence. Um, So in the last 10 years, we've put out about 23 uh, research publications on everything from Hispanic consumers, minority groups, 
uh, minority business enterprises. In fact, last year, we just came out of field with surveying 2,000 minority-owned businesses in Arizona, Nevada, and Utah, and really understanding what those challenges and needs are specifically in those areas. Um, so I was a contractor and did a lot. I, I worked on our flagship publication called Datos, just means data in Spanish, and it is the most comprehensive compilation of secondary research on Hispanic consumers. And it really was born out of necessity. Uh, the chamber would get a lot of calls. Um, we've been doing it for 25 years. Um, I wasn't here in the beginning, but I'm able to be mentored by the first female president and CEO, Sandy Ferniza. And she tells the story about people would call and say, do Hispanics buy houses? Oh, gosh. Do Hispanics like to go to the movies? Do Hispanics, you know, uh, buy cars? You know, just all these crazy things. So we created a research publication with data, secondary data, that kind of tells the story so we can own our own narrative. And have something to hand. <laughs> Let me answer those questions for you very robustly with mm -hmm. our most recent report. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not the research report gal, so mm. this I'm, I'm anxious to and excited to learn from you. Wow. How many years did you say that you're celebrating this year? 75. 75. So, wow. We started in 1948. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And you've now been present since 2019. Correct. How has things changed uh, since the pandemic? Yeah. I'm almost tired of asking that question. And yet, I think it's very important for those of us who are running businesses and have influential roles, uh, all the stakeholders. I think it's an important question. So maybe it's a two-part question. What are you seeing has changed? And what has you hopeful about what we've come through through that threshold? You know, it changed everything, um, not just in life, but certainly in business. And um, I took on this role and, you know, immediately I can recall thinking, well, like everyone else, this is going to be a couple of weeks. We're all going to get back to work. And, but we became really the emergency rooms for businesses. I started to kind of triage folks and members as they came in and they said, you know, my building's been closed down. What do I do? Okay, well, let's get you online. Let's figure out how we can set up a platform for you. One of the things I'm most proud of that our team did was in the first two weeks of the pandemic, we raised $200,000 in private monies and gave back to our members micro grants. Now, there were only $1,000 a week for a total of six weeks, but you would be amazed. That gave our members just enough time to create a pivot strategy. They just needed a little room to breathe. We knew from uh, a J.P. Morgan Chase study that most small businesses only have about two weeks of float. So minority-owned businesses have significantly less. And so our team was able to spring into action raised this money. We created a proprietary system to turn money around within 48 hours. So within 48 hours, our businesses were able to have that $1,000 in their bank account every week, as I said, for six weeks. And that made the difference, uh, you know, for everyone. And we learned that our businesses pivot. They may be small and vulnerable, but they're also small and nimble. 
And so they were able to pivot. And one of the things we just studied was the replenishment rate. So according to the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, one third of all Latino businesses in the U.S. closed as a result of the pandemic. What hadn't been studied was the replenishment rate. That's what we're calling it. And what we saw happen was if someone had a restaurant that had to be, that was shuttered, They also had a catering company that became the primary business, or they had a private label food product that became the primary business. So they weren't starting from scratch. They were able to shift all of the contacts, resources, systems that they had for one business into this other one and get up and going really, really quickly. And so for us, I think we're really, really proud of that. We're fortunate that during the pandemic, we did not lay off, fire, cut back salaries. We remained intact because we knew that if we weren't going to be strong at this point when we were needed the most, then what were we doing, right? right. And so we were able to, to really stay in business up until, you know, at, in last year, we were still doing programs, helping businesses. Um, two other things that I think were really significant game changers for us. One was um, a program called Success Grants, where we partnered with Rasa Development Fund, which is the largest CDFI or community development financial institution. And they had funds from Wells Fargo to provide to businesses to help them, you know, kind of get started, get going again, whatever it may be. And this was a different kind of lending. They were business loans at 3%, which is like free money. And they were from $25,000 to $100,000. You could be a startup business. As long as you had a business plan, you were a member of the chamber, we could vet you having had a relationship with the chamber. And really the rest, you know, it was just, most of it was lending on character, really more than anything. Uh, We submitted 37 applications last July, 27 were approved within a month. And we have a 0% default rate. So really significant. And what that told us was, you know, when you invest and you believe in business owners, it pays off. It's a worthy investment, especially in Arizona, where we are a small business state. And then the the last thing I'll share is um, we recently, you know, we went from a one and a half million dollar organization before the pandemic. This year we'll close as a four million dollar organization. So we really increased exponentially. But part of that was because two weeks ago we were called to the White House and Vice President Harris awarded us one of 43 grants that were allocated from the Capital Readiness Program. Uh, It's $125 million set aside for small businesses in the U.S. There were over 1,000 applications. Uh, We were the only one selected in Arizona. So that's a $3 million grant over the next four years. And capital readiness is what happens or what comes before access to capital. So before you can actually borrow, you need to be ready for that. And so we're going to spend time building out our incubator and accelerator to help businesses get ready so they can grow and scale. So I know that was a very long-winded question, but I wanted to give you some examples of how we were able to shift and pivot. Mm -hmm. Well, it's perfect. And congratulations. That's huge. I believe I saw the announcement on LinkedIn. Thank you. (laughs) And got to share in the joy of the celebration around that. Well, and, and that was a perfect response just around 
what happened during COVID and, and what were the bumps and the bruises and the learning? And in addition to what are you hopeful about? And there's a, couple, a handful of things that you've just mentioned. I'm sure we'll hear more mm-hmm. about who you all are choosing to be and mm-hmm. how you're showing up as a result of everything that we learned and we're still learning from something that really took the what the tablecloth out from underneath all of us. That's a good that's a good oh. analogy. That's exactly what it felt like, but I was just so encouraged by the way people pulled together. One of the other things is the community collaborative really came as a result of the pandemic. We had started it before, and Robin Reed from the Black Chamber, my counterpart, Vic Reed at the Asian Chamber at the time, the late Sean Kwani at the American Indian Chamber, John Lee at the Chinese Chamber, and Ricardo Carlo at the Arizona Minority Contractors Association got together on a holiday weekend, Friday at 3 o'clock, and we thought, well, we all showed up. We, We must really think this is important. And we started then the Chamber Collaborative, and the idea was, Let's just row in the same direction. That organization is now 36 organizations strong. We found the Filipino, Swedish, German, Hungarian, and Polish chambers to join us that we didn't even know existed, right? And so for us, when the pandemic hit, we already had an ecosystem of support. And everybody was trying to get information about how do businesses survive? What do we do about the PPP loans and all of this. So we worked together to provide that information for all of our members and not, we didn't just keep it siloed. And sometimes in the chamber world, things can be siloed, but we found again, we were stronger together. I had the privilege of interviewing a handful of those organizations and these executive directors. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that, that there were that many uh, varieties of chambers out there and love that you all are, are bringing it together. I, I do hear on occasion around, um, I mean, any professional organization, sometimes it feels a little bit competitive. My members don't, can't be your members, or this is what we do, and you can't do that, that kind of thing. But I'm really pleased to hear that that isn't the case with the organizations that you've aligned with. No, not at all. We've really found that allyship, you know, has been just critical. Um, And it was everything during the pandemic, the social injustice, you know, the way that we could line up together in response to and in favor of our minority groups, right? When Asian hate started to happen, you know, it was stronger. I always, you know, say to people, When I speak about Hispanics and the population and the growing purchasing power, people expect Monica Susana Villalobos to say that, right? They don't expect Robin Reed to be able to say that and vice versa. You know, they expect Vic Reed to talk about the closing of the Japanese garden. They don't expect Monica Villalobos to talk about the closing of the the, uh, Japanese market. And so allyship has been really critical. I learned that lesson from Angela Huey at One Community, (laughs) who is phenomenal. I mean, uh, I think I met her on like day two of this job and she went, oh, let let me help you. You And and she meant it. She did. And and she proved it. When SB 1062 was here, and that was the the marriage equality uh, proposition and, and, you know, kind of It was a version of SB 1070, and in the Hispanic community, we had seen that kind of profiling and that kind of retaliation and hatred. And so we stood up with one community, and it was a difficult conversation. But one of the really cool things that came out of that is I remember um, on a Sunday morning, the New York Times was 
wrote a story about SB 1062 in Arizona, and they quoted the Arizona Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And I was horrified. I was horrified. And I called Angela on Sunday, and I'm in tears. Angela, I'm so sorry. And she said, why are you sorry? I said, you're the one doing all the work. Uh And they quoted the Hispanic Chamber. Like, you should be all over this in this article. And she went, no. This is good. This is the best thing that could happen. They expect Angela to say it. They don't expect you to say it. She's like, that's the best thing that could happen. And that truly opened my eyes to the potential of allyship. Um, And it was a great lesson. And, you know, she's just one of my favorite people on the planet. A true gem. Yes. Running alongside Kimber Lanning. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And and I've had the pleasure of interviewing them both and and really just got to sit back and just let them, Uh you know, Fill, fill me in and educate me. And and again, I think we're very grateful to have all of these uh, incredible leaders in Arizona. While I hear, you know, some of the competitiveness, it doesn't typically happen when we're having conversations in here, which I'm grateful for. Uh, we are a small business state mm-hmm. and we are a state around allyship in addition to those introductions and, and helping people accelerate wherever they need to go because people are looking to say, oh my gosh, well, then you need to know so-and-so. And I, I love being part of that community. Yes, absolutely. I think it's one of the things that makes Arizona unique. I grew up in California and it's easy to get lost. Um, I lived in New York for 10 years. It's really easy to get lost in Manhattan. But here it feels like you build this ecosystem, and I almost call it like my own personal board of directors, right, who are constantly looking out for me, who are constantly like, hey, you need to do this, or let's connect with this, or here are your resources, and, you know, you could be really helpful in this uh, particular initiative. And so, for me, it's been great, because I I call us the the, uh, big little town, right? We're still little town values, but with big town growth, And I think if we maintain that, we will continue to be the easiest state in the country to start a business. We're certainly the least expensive state in the country right now to start a business. Do you believe that to be so? I know it to be so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course you do. I'm asking the the person who would know that. Yes. um, When you go register your business at the Arizona Corporate Commission, it is the least amount that you will pay anywhere in the country. Fantastic. And plenty of incubators, plenty of support systems, and kind of speaking to this, it's not exclusive. Mm-hmm. I can be a member of the Hispanic Chamber and also be affiliated and be members, active members in other chambers as well. Absolutely. We encourage that. There are some change chambers where we've launched uh, reciprocity memorandums of, of understanding. And, you know, basically, if they're a member of Robin's chamber and they want a membership at my chamber, I'm happy to provide that. That's another way that our chamber is a little different. Our revenue allocation model is different. Most chambers, 95% of their revenue comes from membership dues. Less than 5% of our revenue comes from membership. It's a huge difference. And the idea is we don't want to make money on the backs of those we're supposed to be helping. So our revenue comes from our corporate partners, comes from grants, um, and it comes from our events um, and programming, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's how we're able to kind of maintain that. And um, we've seen our membership grow a lot. Incredible. And you did mention um, when I made the first introduction, you said it's my, you know, it, it's your Hispanic chamber. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that goes back also 
one of the things the Community Collaborative really focuses on is diversity and inclusion. And we've been doing it for a long time, long before it was popular, right? You have to embed that into the DNA of your organization. And belonging is a piece of that. Mm-hmm. And so I'll always say, you belong to us and we belong to you. Agreed. And, and as long as we have that mindset, then we're in this together, right? And that's, again, way more powerful than I'm going to have my fiefdom and I'm going to live here and, and that's it. And I think representing the largest minority population in the state, it is incumbent upon us to lead by example, Um, We know that we have to be better than the last majority. We have to learn those lessons, right? Mm -hmm. And inclusiveness and belonging is is a very big part of it. Share a little bit more about the demographics and and what that looks like currently and and how you see that shifting in the future. Sure. We're seeing it across the country. I mean, right now, Latinos are 30% of Arizona, 40% of Phoenix Metro, and more than 50% of K through 12. So I always say, if you're doing business in Arizona, you are a Hispanic business, whether you know it or not, right? Those are just the demographics. That's not me pontificating. Um, Those are simply the numbers. And we know that our purchasing power here is about $65 billion. We know that there are about 150,000 Hispanic-owned businesses, about 250,000 minority-owned businesses, including women, Black, Asian, American, Indian, and we work with all of those. In fact, we run a center called Nobedsi that serves the American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities. And people will often say, you're the Hispanic chamber. And I'll say, yes, but the beauty of it is Hispanics can be white, Hispanics can be Black. Hispanics can be Asian and Hispanics can be American Indian. So we have that wonderful possibility to go beyond those barriers. And so, you know, when we look at the population and how much it's growing here, how much it's contributing, all of our data shows that we're putting in to the state and to the country far more than we're taking out. And that's the myth that some people like to like to share, but uh, it is a myth. So we, we consider ourselves myth busters, if you will, um, being able to share that number. You know, with the businesses, the one thing we have seen that I always, I call the perfect storm that people have to keep an eye on is that while minority-owned businesses are growing three to four times faster than non-minority-owned businesses, they are also making significantly less in annual revenue. And so in 2012, when all other small businesses or non-minority-owned businesses were making half a million dollars in annual revenue, minority-owned businesses were making about 110000 That difference accounted for $36 billion in very simple math, not being realized in Arizona's economy. Now, I mentioned we just did the study last year again, and now we're up to $250,000. So it's getting better, but it took 10 years um, to go from 110,000 to 250,000. Why the disparity? What, what? You know, more resources. Um, we're also seeing the fastest growing um, business segment right now is Latina-owned businesses. I've heard that. So between 2012 and 2017, when all other businesses only grew 2% in Arizona, minority-owned businesses grew 60%, Hispanic-owned businesses grew 70%, Hispanic women-owned businesses grew 113%. And so we're seeing women really kind of legitimizing their side hustles, or in Spanish, I call them chambaladitos. Um, which just means side hustle. And they're really um, t- 
taking that role much more seriously, the role that they use to contribute to the family household and family income. And they're legitimizing those businesses. We have programs like Dream Builder, where you come into that program completely free. Uh, You get a laptop. By the end of eight weeks, you have a business plan. Your business license is paid for. There's a seed seed money competition. Um, we work with the Consul de Mexico, so we do it in English and Spanish. We're finding that women are are not just seeking the resources, but they're doing something with them, and that's always exciting. I always like to state, um, I think, for women in general, um, until 1987, women required a man's signature oh, yes. on a business loan. <laughs> And so I think what you're seeing is kind of this Rosie the Riveter phenomena, right? Suddenly women are like, well, we got this. We can do this, right? And so we're seeing that arc right now on women-owned businesses, and it's exciting. It is exciting. And we're linking arms yes. and saying, if I can do this, yeah. you can do this too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Francisco Guerra, uh, the consulate of Mexico, on back in April. He was speaking about some of the programs that they have that are supporting this collaborative between Mexican businesses, of course, and U.S. businesses. And uh, it's been fascinating for me to now kind of keep an eye and watch what he's doing on LinkedIn. Uh, It's fascinating to me that I see when you describe, you know, these women linking arms, more and more, it's a wide circle of many people from many different sectors. Mm -hmm. So ASU, U of A, GCU, uh, the the municipalities and the state and everybody saying we're going to just we're going to raise everyone up at the same time. Yeah. 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 We're seeing a lot more of that. And um, we work with Consul General uh, Jorge Mendoza Yescas. And it's funny to watch. Not funny. It's it's beautiful to watch the growth that happens with these women who come in. They're very humble. They're very quiet, very timid. Yes. Right. And by the end of it, they're telling each other how to run businesses, right? You should do this. And I got this and I got that. And the confidence that comes with that, it, it, it really is a beautiful thing to watch. And, and not only is it, you know, the right thing to do, it makes business sense for the state of Arizona. Absolutely. And thank you for correcting me. Jorge mm-hmm. is the consulate. Francisco, I cannot remember his role, but I know he's, he's in a support role. So thank you. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, I I thought I had the name right. No worries. Uh, Let's talk about purchasing power then with all these beautiful uh, shifts and Mm -hmm. and upticks. What does that do for purchasing power? Right. So in the U.S., we know that um, U.S. Hispanics have about a $2 trillion purchasing power or leverage, if you will. One of the interesting things about that is it's a huge opportunity for financial services. Um, And the reason I say that is even in Arizona, $65 billion, right? These are large amounts. And one of the reasons is Latinos do a really good job of making money and a really good job of spending money, saving not so much. And so this idea of wealth building in our community and succession planning is huge. That's how you build generational wealth. And so one of the things we focus on in our chamber is making sure that we're connecting those dots, that it's not just a dollar for today, but it's a dollar for every day for you, your children, and your grandchildren. Um, How do you build that sustainability? 
And so while the purchasing power is impressive, um, it also comes it's sort of a double-edged sword. It also tells us that, you know, we're overspending. And it's interesting because that comes with a lot of cultural barriers, right? We don't talk about money. It's, in fact, like a forbidden topic. You never have a conversation about finances in your family, you know, whereas other cultures actively participate in that. I can remember my college roommate, is Russian and her family, they had this amazing model. Basically, everybody worked like it didn't matter if you're working a minimum wage job and going to college or you were the dad and you were a real estate guy or whatever, but they all put their money in a bucket and everybody just got what they needed. And I thought, you just give your money and you, and you, you know, so they're, all, and they, they talked about it. And if they had goals for the family, then they saved for those goals and they did that together. It's very different than me growing up. Not that we had a lot of money to be, talk about to begin with, but it was certainly not a discussion at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we get past a lot of those cultural barriers, we start to look at how can we build that generational wealth into our community. And it takes me back to a comment you made when you were sharing some of the statistics. Did you say 50% of our K-12 kiddos come from Latino families? Mm -hmm. So clearly, Mm -hmm. there's a need for this education piece. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing in general, I think, our education system, right? There isn't enough training around financial wellness. I've got a 16-year-old at home and has his first job, Mm -hmm. Chick-fil-A. And uh, I and I did not have a lot of education growing up around financial wellness either. So I've been working to make sure that my kids have a better advantage. So I made sure that we knew how much we know what percentage to put in savings and what percentage to have for fun money, where he's contributing to his car and some of those things. Oh, yeah. So it's it's great when we are business owners and leaders, we can uh, help change that narrative and. Yeah. and help redirect. Well, and I think do it for each other, right? I I had a similar experience. I have a 14-year-old and I had a long conversation with him about a credit card, right? He wanted a credit card for emergency services when I wasn't there or whatnot. And I said, okay, but that's your money you're putting into it. You have a separate credit card number. It's under my account. But what you put in there is what you're going to get out. And I can remember him saying, mom, my credit card isn't working. And I said, really? What's like, it's not running? Is it the chip? I don't know. I don't know. Look, you know, and and he's showing me on the computer. And I said, well, did you look to see how much money you have in there? And he went, what do you mean? (laughs) And I said, do you think it's just this? We had this conversation. It's not this stream of money that just, you know, keeps going. And, and, And it really blew him away. And so... You know, those kinds of experiences, we need to teach our kids in general. Now at 14, 16, 11, before they leave high school. Yes. Because having that mistake when I had it later at at NAU, it's almost a little too late. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. But I'm hopeful. I think that our communities can learn a lot from each other. And we have to be open to that. You know, we have to be open to, I know that there's sometimes between cultures, a lot of defensiveness. And I keep saying, you know, I've, I've heard it all, like every stereotype, every, and, and to me, I used to get really upset. And one that used to really bother me was, well, you don't look Hispanic. I'd say, well, thank you. My white skin is a reminder of the raping and pillaging of my people. Appreciate that. So I, it was a little caustic. 
it was a little caustic, right? But, you know, I was younger and I was angry and all that. And now I'm thinking, gosh, those are great learning opportunities, right? And teaching moments, even right? Those, even that approach is a teaching moment. <laughs> well, but, I, but I get you. Yes. yes. <laughs> it served its purpose. I've, I've mellowed in my <laughs> old age. You know, my, my, I've kind of rounded out some of those hard edges. But now it's like, well, tell me more about that. Why do you think that? Love it. Did you know that Hispanics can be white, black, Asian, Hispanic, American? And all of a sudden, it's a different conversation mm-hmm. as opposed to the you know, immediately putting up that wall. And so the more that we do that, I think the better off we are. But it's a process. It's a process. For some reason, Robin is showing up in my mind as we're talking. He is such a great teacher like yourself. I've only had a chance to meet him a couple of times, and I'm really appreciative of that soft nature. Mm -hmm. I know that there have been hard edges (laughs) and experiences, and just with, you know, those experiences has come great wisdom and an opportunity to really help someone nudge them into Mm -hmm. a conversation that's going to take them to a whole new level. Right. Yeah. And, And I think you have to lead with that, right? We talk about being servant leaders, but you have to serve first and then lead, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the great things that Robin does. And, and really, when we have those conversations, he'll tell you the same thing. People tell him all the time, you're so articulate. He's like, yeah, what does that mean? Why are yeah. you know, has has a white man ever been told that he's articulate like that, like on a regular basis? And not likely. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting when you start sharing those stories and why you do things. And the more you're aware of them, I think the more you can start to change them. But if you don't know what they are and you're not willing to be open to them, then you're not going to change much. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about diversity and inclusion, and again, it's, I'll call it a buzzword for lack of a better term right now. Sometimes I hear folks say, I, I don't know what to do with this, like a business owner or, or an organization. And from my perspective, it's because I see that they continue to keep themselves in that same that same box. Well, I don't, in fact, I was on a board and I was looking at the, you know, the photos as I came on board and everyone, all middle-aged men basically, and maybe one or two women. My challenge to the board was how do we bring in a more diverse population so that we can represent the folks that we're here to serve? And no one meant it in a bad way, but it was just I don't know anybody. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, well, go meet people. Right. So <laughs> Where else can we be encouraged? And if somebody, and, and I really believe that they felt that, that I, I, ju- I just don't know what to do. Right. It's sincere. It's, I, I think it's sincere and it's genuine, but you have to be willing to do something about it. And I know, you know, Robin, other counterparts, we've had this conversation over and over when companies will come to us and they say, we really, we have these great products to attract Latino consumers. We think it'll be great. And I'm like, before we start talking about that, what does your board look like? Mm-hmm. What does your workforce look like? Is that diverse? How many how many people of color or ability or what what is, how diverse is your executive management team? And then it gets quiet very quickly. And I say, let me know when you fix that issue. And then we can talk about attracting Latino consumers, right? And so I think it's just reminding people, like, this is something that is effort. It doesn't just happen. You're talking about undoing years of, you know, systemic injustice. And so it's going to take work. And, it, and it's going to take uncomfortable work. 
You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, and it's also incumbent upon us who belong to minority groups, women, um, Hispanic, you know, uh, disabled community, uh, veteran community, like all of these communities to say, we're going to stand for something more. Like, I don't want to be a token on a board. Mm-hmm. I'll have people who will actually call and say, oh, we were looking at our board and our chart. We don't have anybody Hispanic, so can you be on our thinking? Well, that's the bad reason to pick somebody. Like, yeah. just because I'm Hispanic, really? I get those calls a lot, and I'll say, let's talk about a strategy to increase diversity. And by the way, if you're looking for a shrinking wallflower, you know, to just sort of be window dressing, you've come to the wrong right. person, right? Like, be careful what you ask for yeah, yeah. because it's going to get loud and it's going to get uncomfortable. And, and you have to be okay with that. This happens a lot, especially during the festive months. So Hispanic heritage is coming up and I call it the elf on a shelf kind of you know, phenomena where wow. all of a sudden, September 15th to October 15th, I am the most popular person in the room and it's Hispanic heritage. And I get that. And I'm so grateful that people want to celebrate that. But we're here all year long. Yep. We're here 365 days a year. Like, you know, it's, it's not something that's new, but somehow something happens to everybody between September 15th and October 15th. And it's like, we just landed on a U, you know, from a UFO or something, and yeah. oh, everybody wants to talk to them. Same thing for um, uh, Black History Month in February, you know. So we're trying to kind of move away from that and say love and are appreciative of the celebration, but it has to be more than that. You can't just pull us out like an elf on a shelf and be like, oh, here they are for a month, and then put us away. Fantastic analogy. <laughs> yeah, great, great comparison. How do folks become members? What what does that look like and, and the level of involvement that people are offered? Yeah. So um, all they need to do is walk in. I mean, we have 21 bilingual full-time employees that are at the office. We're on the BBB campus, Better Business oh, Bureau. I, I don't know that I knew that. Yeah, they've got a wonderful campus, and they've been incredibly generous. Matt Failing, the president there, I always tease him because— this was supposed to be a six-month solution while we were in transition to another building. The pandemic hits. We've been there for like four years. Yes. I'm like, we're like those cousins who show up and never leave. <laughs> it's like, no, we love having you guys here. So we're in their co-working space. There's three buildings on the campus. The eastmost building is the co-working space, and it's just comfortable. And people love coming in there. They love sharing ideas. We've got a farm table. If you want to sit down, we've got couches. If you want to relax, we've got desks and conference rooms and, you know, every way that you want to work comfortably, it's there. And so we invite people to come all the time. It's been a really great partnership with the BBB. You know, our website is really, really informative as well. But our events, I mean, we have events almost every week. We have one Thursday, I believe. And so come to the events. Like, everybody's welcome. It's not one of these things where you have to be Hispanic to be part of the Hispanic Chamber at all. Probably 50% of our membership is not Hispanic. People are always surprised to find that out. And I'm like, you know, it's it's just a matter of it's a place for resources and to truly what I call networking, right? Being mm-hmm. able to put into each other's account of trust and account of resources as opposed to just, oh, let me collect your card, you know, and get a stack of cards. So everyone is invited. 
We're easy to find, uh, whether in person or online, and everyone's welcome. The events are a combination of networking, education, you name it, speakers. Yeah, so we do about 50 to 60 events every year. Uh, Six of those are signature events. So our signature events, are our most um, popular one is the Black and White Ball. We have, that is actually the longest running formal gala in the state, uh, 68 years now. We have probably now 1,200 to 1,500 people who attend, and I always affectionately refer to it as the Hispanic prom. (laughs) So if you didn't go, you get to go every year. And then we have small trainings, a dream builder cohort of 20 to 25 women learning from each other or a workshop on how to manage your finances, financial wellness, or coaching. Why do you need an executive coach? You know, all of these things to just help people learn. And what we're finding is our members are just hungry for it. They soak it all up like a sponge. We have probably 10 different programs and members will just go from one program to another program to another program because they love the content and it makes their businesses better. So there's always something going on. It sounds like it was 50 to 60 events a year and six signature events. When yep. is the um, that the main? Uh, so the black out? and white ball is yeah. usually um, Cinco de Mayo weekend. Okay. Um, and then our next big one coming up on September 18th is Datos. We're focusing on transportation this year. We will have the chief of staff of the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, also a representative from the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. We're sharing data on on transportation uh, in Arizona, what it means for the workforce, what it means for infrastructure, electrification. You know, all of those things are so important. It will be at Symphony Hall. We're expecting about a thousand people. And we're really excited to be able to share that with everyone. What other organizations? We talked a little bit about some of the um, allyship with other chambers. Who else do you work kind of arm in arm and hand in hand with? Arizona Commerce Authority, I would imagine. We do some things with them, um, but I think for sure Kimber Lanning at Local First, yeah. we have a program that we do um, with them. We really, you know, try to work with everyone, not just community partners, but also corporate partners that are looking to embed that DEI, who are looking to work on their supplier diversity programs, who are looking to, you know, recruit more diverse, a uh, more diverse workforce. And so we like to be able to be partners with all of those different organizations where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is there any organization or even corporation that is just an arm's reach away and you you haven't quite had them link arms with you. Not not because there's been resistance, but those introductions. Are is there a, is there a wish list there? Oh, absolutely. We call it our zero share list. Okay. And I won't mention any of the companies yeah. by name, but they're companies that we just haven't made a connection with. So much of it is, you know, who who do you know? Who can connect yep. you? And one of the things that came out of the community collaborative was exactly that that. You know, Robin can say, hey, do you have a relationship with so-and-so? And I'll say, actually, I do have a contact there. Let me connect both of you. That would have taken me, you know, months, years to do if I had to do it on my own, right? And so we share those kinds of contacts and information also as a message, I think, to corporate partners to kind of say, we're all talking. Mm-hmm. We, we all know what we're getting and who's getting what. And we want to make sure that you're equitable, Um, in that distribution. And so, again, for us, speaking in one voice has been really, really important. Critical. 
What's next for you in the chamber? Wow. Well, we just got this new grant, um, as I mentioned, which is huge for us, which means we've got to, you know, set up our formal incubator and accelerator over the next few years. I think also our relationships, you know, with Mexico, um, making sure that we're really taking advantage of the geographic fortune that we have Mm -hmm. um, and being able to create more cross-border interactions, trade, relationships, and that we have the resources for that. I think also extending a lot of our uh, market intelligence across the country. We hosted the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce Convention last September, and it was phenomenal. And a lot of the chambers loved our our work in market intelligence. And so how do we not just create Datos Arizona, but Datos Florida, Datos Minnesota, because we're everywhere, right? And so being able to be a national best practice, um, we want to do our part here in Arizona to be a global hub of business. And we believe that we have a role in that and a responsibility, frankly, to that global mindset. And sometimes our public policy works against us. And so it's, you know, fighting ourselves and trying to put a damper on those things that are sometimes sensationalized in the media, and sometimes rightly so, but showing the country, the world that Arizona is that go-to place, that global hub of business, and it's a great place to live, work, and play. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, of, my mind went to rural Arizona, and it's. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for our viewers and listeners to know that it's the Arizona Hispanic Chamber, not Greater Phoenix mm-hmm. Hispanic Chamber. Can you talk a little bit about some of the relationships with either, you know, Tucson or the Southwest and mm-hmm. up north, that sort of thing? Sure, absolutely. So Arna Betsy Center works in a lot of the rural areas, particularly with the American Indian community, um, Navajo Nation. We have a team that's constantly out there at the reservations, like trying to find resources. And it could be everything from connectivity, because mm-hmm. a lot of these tribes are out in the middle of nowhere. It's two hours just to get to a supermarket. During the pandemic, a lot of our work there was much more basic needs. You know, how do we get a truck full of groceries, you know, to those areas? Now it's how do we make sure we're not taking individuals who want to start businesses out of those communities, but helping them stay in those communities and keeping them there to serve, you know, others and not doing kind of that brain drain thing, right, where we're pulling them out. So we do quite a bit of work on the reservations. We work with all of them. In fact, we were the beneficiary of a five-tribe resolution to help provide technical assistance for businesses. So we have a partner who said, we love what you do. We want you to do it for all five of our tribes. And they wrote a resolution that said the Arizona Hispanic Chamber of Commerce is going to be our representative and provide technical assistance on XYZ. And that to me was just, it was such a moment of pride because I knew that our team had been working really, really hard. And you know, it was making it, 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 anyone could have gotten a resolution like that. But the fact that it was us, that was huge for us. And so we do spend a lot of time um, on the reservations, um, sometime in Flagstaff. On Friday, I will be in Douglas, Arizona, providing um, some market intelligence as well, just kind of talking about the work that we do. 
Arizona is just tends to be very Phoenix centric. And so we try to do um, as much as we can. And we work with um, my counterpart at the Tucson Hispanic Chamber, Rob Elias, who does great work in Tucson, other chambers as well. So really try to get out. I think my ultimate dream, I would love to have satellite offices all over the state, right? Where all of that information, all of those resources are constantly being flowed out um, into those areas that wouldn't otherwise get them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So much uh, fascinating conversation. I, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes. I want to make sure we have a chance to um, share with people again what the website is and, and where to find you and stay in touch. I'm also curious about you as a young woman or even a little girl. Is this the kind of work? Did you always know you wanted to be in this kind of work? You grew up in L.A.? I did. I grew up in East L.A. and in a neighborhood where you had, you know, two options to get out. You get arrested or you get an education. I chose the latter. I had a, you know, strong family, grew up with my grandparents and um, a single mom and, and you know, really saw, I, I learned what life could be from watching novellas, really. That was my idea of, oh, someday I want to be novella successful, right? Like be that successful where you, you know, like they were on the novellas and, um, you know, went to school, um, definitely, I think even still suffer from imposter syndrome. Like they're going to figure out I'm just some snot-nosed kid from East LA. And, you know, everybody's going to be like, why are we listening to her? But it's been a long road of fighting those internal demons and then the external demons, right, that we all encounter and racism and discrimination and all of that. But no, I don't, I don't, I, I wanted to live past childhood. I wanted to not be you know, the the victim of a drive-by shooting. I wanted to not be jumped into a gang. It wasn't about what I wanted to be. It's about I knew what I didn't want. I didn't want those things in those neighborhoods. And I look back now and I just think, you know, it's it's a narrow path. It's a very narrow path. And it could have gone either way, frankly. But I had, you know, great mom, you know, amazing grandparents, an amazing family that kind of kept me and steered me in the right direction and try to do that now. But it's funny because I look at my boys who are so incredibly insulated and I'm like, you wouldn't last a day in my neighborhood, right? (laughs) Like you would last an hour in my neighborhood. So I don't know that I, I knew I wanted, I wanted to be, I wanted to do something meaningful. I just, I had no idea what it was going to be. And I think I kind of fell into this. I was in marketing. I was in advertising. I was in all these different experiences. And I always say, now I feel like I get to use all of that power for good. And that to me is meaningful. Great conversation. Thank Thank you, you. Robin Reed and (laughs) Daryl, for the introduction. (laughs) Again, been a long-awaited opportunity to connect, and I'm grateful that you you were able to come and spend your afternoon with us. Appreciate it. So the uh, Hispanic Chamber, Arizona Hispanic Chamber, is azhcc.com. Correct. And not only are you there personally on LinkedIn, but also there's a space for the Arizona Hispanic Chamber on LinkedIn as well. That's right. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, we can just keep up with everything. 
yeah. all over social there media. There are much younger people on staff yeah. that manage all of that. Thankfully so. <laughs> yes. I know sometimes they're like, we're trending. I'm like, that's great. What does it mean? <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And the landscape for social media has changed <sighs> so much. I, I owned a company before I opened a business Radio X, and it was a social media company. We were fortunate to sell it. But I tell my team, that's been eight years. So much has changed. I, I don't have a clue anymore. <laughs> I, I'm really grateful that I have all of them. I people are like, "Oh, we see you everywhere." I'm like, "Thank you, team." Because, yeah, yes. You know, where did you that, see me? I have yeah, no idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell me more. <laughs> right. <laughs> where have I been? <laughs> so good. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you again for your time. I'm thank grateful you. and um, looking forward to hopefully exchanging some introductions and being champions for each other. Thank you so much for this platform. I think it's really important, and I love the way that you're doing it. Oh, appreciate it. You've been listening to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from Max 6 Entrepreneur Center right here in Tampa, Arizona. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thanks for listening. <laughs>